1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're at a pivotal text, and my title for you today, for this Easter, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is the resurrection of Christ, the answer to man's dilemma. Let me begin by saying this. We all know the saying, put your money where your mouth is, or the proof is in the pudding, or show me, don't tell me. Friends, Christianity is about the proof. It's about the demonstration as much as it is the doctrine. It's about the actions as much as it is the affirmations. It's about what's been performed as much as it is what's been promised. You see, it's not about pointing us toward an idea of truth because Jesus is the truth. It's not about pointing us toward some idea of the way because Jesus is the way. And it's not about pointing us toward an ideal life because Jesus is the life. John chapter 14, verse 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. But what if it stopped there? What if it stopped with the affirmation and not the action? What if it stopped with the doctrine and not the demonstration? What if Jesus, like each and every teacher before him, like each and every teacher after him, simply contributed to philosophy and religion and then died and was buried in a tomb in which, if our what-if were to be, he would still be buried since A.D. 33? What if there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ? The point I'm getting at this morning, friends, is this. The resurrection of Christ is the answer to man's dilemma because it guarantees all that Jesus said and did during his life and ministry. For Christianity, the resurrection is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely pivotal. If we remove it from the equation of our faith, then we will never come to the proper sum. There are three things that I'd like to share with you from our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's begin with our first. God gave his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. God gave his word. That's our first point, our starting point this morning. If you look back at the text, please, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If, conditional clause, if, You hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 
There are a couple of things that I think are worthy of note here in this text for us today. First, I want you to note that the gospel was preached. First of all, the gospel was preached. What is the gospel? It's a good question. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners like us. Unworthy and undeserving. Because God is love, and in his love, he sent his only son to die a death that he, Jesus, did not deserve. So that you and I could, by faith in him, have an eternal life with God, which we don't deserve. The Bible says it this way, when Jesus died, it was the righteous dying for the unrighteous. We might say it like this, that the cross of Jesus Christ bridges the gap that has been created between us and God by our sin. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 2, says these words. Listen closely. Your iniquity, say my iniquity. Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Now, this is not to say that God loses the ability of hearing. This isn't to say that God loses the ability of sight. What this is saying is that God is holy and we are not. And until that unholiness and that sin is rectified and dealt with, we cannot have a relationship with him. So Paul says, it all begins with the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no reconciliation. This is the good news of what Paul was preaching, that God saves sinners like us. Not just like them, or them, but like us. The second thing I want you to note is that the gospel requires faith. The gospel was preached, first of all, we see that there in our text, but secondly, I want you to note that the gospel requires faith. And the gospel is true whether we believe it or not. Whether we've heard it or not. Whether we like it or not. Paul says to the Corinthians, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Meaning, simply, that faith is necessary and it holds us steady. That's why he says at the end, unless you believed in vain, which is to say, unless you didn't really believe. Because, friends, what he's saying is this, I preached the gospel to you and you received it, unless you didn't really receive it. And I know some of you, it's Easter, you might be here for the first time in a long time, it might have been years since you've been in church, you were dragged, or maybe you felt convicted because it was a special holiday, but the reality of the matter is, is you all, myself included, have to come to terms with questions like this, do I or don't I really believe? Forget about what you say to your mother. Do you or don't you actually believe? That's what the Bible is saying. If you actually believed, unless you believed in vain. Because that's what, if we come to church, we sing a couple songs, maybe we cry because we just got out of a relationship, and suddenly the gospel seems attractive, but five minutes after we leave church, we have forgotten Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, unless you were affected in vain. 
Friends, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us, but the gospel is only available to us by faith. You have to believe. We aren't saved by works. We're saved by Jesus' works for us. We're not saved by being self-righteous. We're saved through Jesus' righteousness. And that salvation is available to us by faith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I love what C.S. Lewis once wrote. C.S. Lewis once wrote this about faith and belief, and I quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Friends, our faith in Christ is not only a direct line between the two of us, Christ and us, but it also illuminates life It also illuminates everything around us so that we view things through the lens of our faith in Jesus. It's called a worldview. This is why the church is at such a contradiction with the world. The world is doing what it does, and the church is going, you're all crazy. And that's because the worldview of the church says what the Bible says. The third thing I want you to note It's not only that the gospel was preached and that the gospel is activated in your life by faith. But the third thing that I want you to note under this point is that the gospel is in the scriptures. The gospel is in the scriptures. And that is to say the gospel is in the Bible. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What difference does it make, Joe? If it's in the Bible, I don't want to read it and I don't believe it. And that's a good question. But the answer is simple. It matters because time and time again, the Bible has proven to be a reliable historical guide. It's trustworthy and true. It has withstood the test of time. And if it says about the gospel and faith and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is true, that it did in fact occur, say amen if you're listening, then your eternal life depends upon it. You can put it under your pillow or throw it in the trash or put it on the dash of your car and never, ever read it. It will do you no good. But if you read the Bible and trust the Bible, then what you're trusting is the good news of the gospel that is placed in the Bible. If you avoid the Bible, then you're avoiding Jesus. If you're avoiding the Bible, then you're avoiding the gospel. And if you're avoiding the gospel, you are avoiding eternal life. Paul says, it's the good news of God's word. It's the good news of God's word. But secondly, I want you to note this. Witnesses gave their testimony to this. God gave his good news in his word, but not only did God give his word, but secondly, in the next set of verses, witnesses gave their testimony too. You can look at it with your eyes if you like. As I read, I'm going to begin back at verse 1. And read through to verse 8. It says, now I, Paul says, I would remind you. Who who needs a reminder every now and then? Right? I know some of you. Better put your hand up. We all need reminders every now and then. Okay? And now if you're a husband, you know you need reminders. That's what God gave you a wife for. So that she could remind you. Because you forgot that you needed to be reminded. I'm helping you out, ladies. Say amen. 
I want to remind you. But what's interesting, friends, is, is, is Paul's not saying, I want to remind you of this chore, or I want to remind you of this idea, or I want to remind you of this promise. No, no, he says, I want to remind you, not of those horizontal things. I want to remind you of this vertical thing. This thing between you and God, I want to remind you of the word that God gave you. That's the gospel. I preached it to you. You received it. You stand in it. And you're being saved. Conditional clause, if you hold fast to the word. That is to say, if you believed it. I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. Here's the next part I want us to look at. Because I delivered to you of first importance. This is the primary thing in our faith, guys. I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to... More than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, that means some have died. And, and, and then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There's a few things here that I want to note as well this morning. First, I want you to note that Paul refers to the Scriptures. Now, I know I've already made this point, but I want to reiterate it just to a certain degree. We've already covered it. But, but again, Paul says that the Scriptures play an important role because they're authoritative and not to be ignored. In my humble, unimportant opinion, so much of what we're facing today as a society is the direct result of the Bible being ignored. Every single time we subtract the Bible from an environment, we see the immediate ramifications, and they're never positive. Friends, we can't afford to ignore the Scriptures. We can't afford to ignore the Bible. When we ignore the Bible, we do so to our own peril. We need to read them. Amen? We need to research them. We need to meditate upon them. We need to pray them. We need to even argue with them if that is part of our design. But at the end of the day, with that debate or argument, we need to understand that it isn't our authority. It's God's authority, and we need to submit ourselves to them. Wrestle with the Bible. Do it. God is not intimidated by you. I love what Calvin said years ago. He said, I would just as soon protect the Bible as I would protect the lion. We don't need you to protect the Bible. Debate with the Bible all you want. It's been around a lot longer than you. But don't give off an excuse that you yourself have never verified to allow yourself not to read the Bible. Second, Paul refers to the testimonies. And this is where I want to spend a couple of moments of our time. Not only did God give his word, but witnesses gave their testimonies too. And this is important. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, for example, it tells us that Jews were saying that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples stole Jesus' body. In fact, Justin Martyr, who was a church leader who lived during the second century, that would be a couple hundred years after Jesus, he once wrote in one of his writings that the Jews were still circulating that same theory 
at that time. So after the resurrection of Jesus, they told everyone that the reason the body was missing was because the disciples stole the body. A couple hundred years later, that rumor was still circulating as a theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. But what I find very interesting about this fact, historically speaking, is this. They're not arguing that the body's gone. By inference, the theory that they are supposed to believe is saying, we don't know what happened with the body. We're blaming it on the disciples. But they can't argue with the fact that the body is gone. There was no body in the tomb. They didn't even argue against the resurrection itself. They tried to argue some other solution for the empty tomb other than the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection means everything that he did and everything that he said was true. Arguably, one of the most important aspects of the resurrection is that the resurrection testimony begins with the witnesses being women. Now, if you're trying to build a case for something that was completely unbelievable and didn't actually happen, this would be a horrible idea in antiquity. In ancient times, this would have been an utter and complete failure because Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote in his book, Antiquity of the Jews, this sentence, and I quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted. See, historically, women were not allowed to testify in court because women did not hold an equal position with men in antiquity. So as a result, the testimony of a woman would not be believed. And yet in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Maybe because God knew that women liked to talk and they were going to spread the news really fast. You know, these disciples, you know how men are. They're going to go back in their cave and think about it for six months. No, 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 I need this good news to go out, so I'm going to send the ladies. And the ladies got it done, amen? Amen. But I think this is an important note, and there are levels to the importance of this note. The first thing that I want you to note is this. If it were a lie, this would be a horrible idea. Why would you take someone who lacked reputation and influence in society to be the first witness and first deliverer of the news that is supposed to change the world? Horrible idea, unless it's true. And secondly, by doing this, God affirms to us that there is no difference between the men and the women in the kingdom. Jesus did not pay less for a woman than he did for a man. In fact, maybe he paid for me twice. I mean, I don't know. Some of us are worse sinners than others. Amen? But the reality of the matter is, is if you're honest with yourself, you've never, you've never met a worse sinner than yourself. doesn't matter what anybody else is. If you have a true view of yourself through the gospel, then you know that it is only by God's grace that you're saved in the first place. Forget about whether that's a woman or a man. And so we read in Galatians 3.26, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. All are one in Christ. And that is to say that when I was saved, I wasn't emasculated. But, but what he's saying is that men and women are equal in the kingdom. Not that they don't have roles and responsibilities specifically designed by God for them to fulfill. 
but that you can be all the woman that God has called you to be in the kingdom. And I can be all the man that God's called me to be in the kingdom. So, for a couple of different reasons, I think, God ordained in his providence that the first witnesses of the empty tomb would be the women. And they hustle back and they tell the disciples. And why did they have to hustle back and tell the disciples? This is a great question. The reason they had to hustle back and tell the disciples is because the disciples were hiding. Why were they hiding? Because five minutes ago, their leader just got nailed to a cross. It's like all the members of the gang hiding in a warehouse after the leader of the gang was just shot by the cops. The, the, the issue, friends, is one of wisdom. They were wise to hide because they were being sought after. They were wise to hide because the religious leaders and the authorities were seeking them out. So the women saw, the women witnessed. They turned around and they ran back and they told the disciples but when the women told the disciples, say amen if you're listening, the disciples came out of hiding. These testimonies, friends, are important. When the resurrection of the Son of God occurred, it changed people. The people who were hiding came out of hiding. The people who felt and sensed an inequality in the world suddenly felt the equality in the kingdom. The resurrection changes things. And in addition to that, with these witnesses' testimonies, we learned something, namely that, that the resurrection didn't happen in the corner of a world or in some vacuum. In, in fact, the apostle Paul once argued this in the book of Acts to a political authority who he was arrested by, and when he was given the opportunity to talk to him about the resurrection and the influence of Christianity and Christ, one of the things he said was this. The king knows about these things, Paul says, and to him I speak very boldly because I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Why not, Paul? Because they weren't done in a corner. You see, friends, when Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, everybody knew. It's not like today, 2,000 years later, and we're having to read in reverse. It's not like we're having to, to, to think through some of the things. No, this is weeks after the event. Not years, weeks so of course the body was gone. If the, if the Jews had the body and they were playing some kind of trick, as soon as the disciples came out of hiding and started saying, Jesus is risen. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's the savior of the world. They could have brought him out in a wheelbarrow. You talking about this, Jesus? And that would have stopped Christianity right quick. Or if they were being dishonest and lying and trying to perpetrate this lie and trying to perpetuate this lie so that they would be religiously influential in the world, they could have stopped it the second they started killing them. I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of people willing to die for what they know to be a lie if that is in fact the case. But that isn't the case, friends. 
the reason they came out of hiding and the reason there was no argument to be made is because everyone knew the body was gone. And the only people who were standing by the belief of the resurrection were the people, hear me now, were the people who were willing to die for it. That leads to our last point. We have a new identity. We have a promised identity. Look back at the text, if you would. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and following. Now, now Paul is going to get personal. He's going to start saying I. He's not going to say you guys. He's not going to say us. He's not going to say Cephas and the disciples. He's going to say I. What's he going to say? I. I. Listen up. Last of all, as one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Put a pin in that. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was me, uh, not, sorry, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. Now, the reasons I want to explore this note with you this Easter 2023, happy Easter, by the way, is important. We're raised to be unselfish, and that's true. We're raised, many of us, to believe in what is called the golden rule found in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, namely, as you would, others would do to you, do so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But there's nothing wrong with having a personal relationship with God. And, 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 and some of you excuse the accountability and responsibility of having a personal relationship with God because you put it on your parents or you put it on your grandparents or you put it on your kids. Everybody can have that personal relationship, but you excuse yourself. You don't want that liability. But I'm here to tell you today, you cannot be saved through somebody else's faith. You gotta believe. And what Paul is saying is, man, I was having a good life. I was going hard, I was going fast, and I realized that I was not saved. Let me break this down a little bit for you, and I want you to think about it as we go through it. So, so in one portion of the New Testament, Paul gives his testimony. And when he gives his testimony, he iterates a number of things. I'm going I'm to share them with you. Because he was a Jewish leader with deep, rich Jewish heritage, and he was very proud of this heritage. And so he says at one point that he was circumcised on the eighth day, which was established in Genesis chapter 17 for all Jewish males. He was a proud Israelite going by the name Saul, which was one of the kings in the Old Testament. The Hellenized name was Paul, by the way. So he was, like in the Greek, he was known as Paul, but in the Hebrew, he was known as Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was so passionate about the Old Testament law that he was educated. We might say that Paul had a Ph.D. in Old Testament. He was an educated man. He was even a Pharisee. 
which was a small select group of Jewish scholars and leaders during the time of Jesus. Only about five or 6,000 existed during the time of Jesus. And he even persecuted the church. He oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr included in the Bible, Acts chapter 7 and 8, where he is, Stephen is stoned to death by the Jewish leaders for preaching that Jesus was God's son. And they said, this man commits blasphemy, and they throw stones at him until he dies. But in order to throw the stones at Stephen, they take their coats off, and the person that they give their coats to to hold so that they can stone Stephen to death is Saul. The very first martyrdom recorded in the New Testament And the participant in the martyrdom is the man we revere as the Apostle Paul. Friends, it is in that context that he says these words, and I quote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you probably came in here and said, I don't have a problem with God performing miracles. I don't have a problem with God. I don't have a problem with God doing miracles in other people's lives. But I know that I'm not good enough. And I'm here to reassure you today, you're not. None of us are. Not one of us deserves or can earn or can merit the love and the affection of God. It is available to us because he's gracious. He looks down upon us and he gives it to us freely. It's free to us, but it wasn't free to him. He paid for your salvation in full in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, so many people say, oh, the love of God is free. Well, it's free to us. It's not free to him. He paid for this. So Paul is saying, I look back with regret on all the achievements that I ever achieved. I look back with regret on my celebration of heritage and ethnicity and accomplishment because when I met Jesus, I realized everything paled in comparison. By the grace of God, he said, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Let me explain to you what he's saying here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed him. It changed the man who was so proud in so many different ways. It changed him for God's glory and for his good. Some were afraid and in hiding. Just weeks after Jesus' death, they came out of hiding. They started preaching in public in front of the very faces of the people who crucified Jesus. They were beaten. They were jailed. They were mocked, but they didn't care because they were changed. And Paul was all about being a Jew. He undoubtedly knew the story of Jesus. He was present when these events took place. He assisted, as I said, in the martyrdom of Stephen. But after the miraculous conversion of Paul, he changed and he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He doesn't say, I was who I was. He doesn't say, with effort and discipline, I will be a better person in the future, someday. No, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am right now. Did you get that, friends? 
Church, do you get that? It's not about tomorrow. That's grace. You don't have to worry about being a better person tomorrow. You've got to to worry about being a person of faith today. A person of faith today will always make it into the kingdom tomorrow. But a person who is rejecting faith and placing all their hope in their effort will always be disappointed because there are none righteous, not even one. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is for us. That we identify ourselves, as Paul does, as recipients of this righteousness and grace that is revealed in Christ because he was raised from the dead. That self-righteous, ethnically proud, Christian-hating zealot saw the resurrected Jesus, and it flipped his world upside down. First of all, let me tell you this. This tells us that God's grace leads to Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible or have a religious conversation or or think in some form or fashion of your existence and God's existence and how it all works out and it doesn't lead you to Jesus Christ, you're on the wrong road. John 14 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are no other paths. There are plenty of paths. But only one path leads to God and that is Jesus God's grace isn't about us. It's not about our sufficiency. It's not about our awesomeness. It's about bringing glory to him and trusting him. Do you know his grace? Have you placed your faith in his grace? Second, it tells us that God's grace leads to a Christian lifestyle. And friends, this is important too. I don't want to hear anything about this. I'm a Christian. I got saved when I was six, and I've been living like hell ever since. I can tell you, you probably weren't a Christian when you were six. It's time you have a serious adult conversation with God. What you know in your mind and what you know in your heart are not the same thing. The reality of the matter is, is if you know God, if his grace has impacted your life, then there will be a visible difference, just like it was with Paul just like it was with the witnesses who were in hiding. They came out of hiding. Hear me. We've all heard how we ought to live, and we've all heard why. So many people live however they want to live. They live terrible, irresponsible, godless lives, and they finish it up by saying, only God can judge me. Brother, Sister, I'm here to tell you, God will judge you. Don't say that like it's light. And I'm here to tell you, you will not pass his judgment. God will judge you, and you will not succeed. Because not one of us is righteous. You might be right. Maybe only God can judge you. But you don't want to be on that side of the argument. You want to be on the side of the argument that says, I was a sinner, and now I'm a saint. I was living for my own selfish purposes, and now I'm living for God's glory. I was thinking, acting like that, and now I'm thinking and acting like this. To close, let me say this. The resurrection of Christ is God's answer to man's dilemma. We see evidence of it, and the witnesses changed. We see evidence of it in the empty tomb. We see evidence of it. In Paul's testimony, 
we see evidence of it in the word of God.